0: I'm still wondering how you go from Harry Connick Jr. to me, but... Well, here's the thing. We're talking about artistry and craftsmanship, and you are both of these things. (gasps) Perfect.
1: Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan. Editor-in-Chief at Steinway & Sons and for the online music magazine ListenMusicCulture.com My guest today is Stephen Brown an avid crafter and crafty fellow who, consumed by his passion for making ornaments co-founded Glitterville a company that collaborates with retailers across the country to offer thousands of handmade ornaments and other products year-round He spoke to me at my apartment in New York City
0: Hi, Steven. Hey, Ben <laughs> How's it going? It's good. I have not seen you in quite some time. I know. It has been a while because you're all over the world. As are you. The other side of the world. Yes. Correct. Okay.
1: So let's talk about that. I know you from Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And when I was in Oak Ridge, you were working in the costume shop of the Oak Ridge Community Playhouse. And then we both ended up in New York City. The place where things get done. (laughs) uh, (laughs) you, You were working in another costume shop in New York. I was. And then all of a sudden, probably not all of a sudden, but in our minds, you were doing
0: costumes for a soap opera. I think it was Guiding Light. One life to live and as the world turns. One life to live. Because, <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> but almost. I think Guiding Light was off the, <laughs> off the air by then. But yeah, after the Oak Ridge Playhouse, I moved to New York City and started working at a costume shop called Odds Costumes for Television and Film. And that sort of opened a door for, you know, I had always loved soap operas. It was mm-hmm. like my main passion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to come to New York and actually do clothes for all those people that I had watched all my life, I was so excited. Uh, And that led to lots of other wacky projects.
1: Now, I think we knew you were on it even at the Oak Ridge Playhouse. You came up with some tremendous costumes, given what we had to work with down there. But how, first of all, how did you even build up costume knowledge? How did you do your research? These are in
0: the pre-internet years, so I imagine there were maybe even some books involved. Well, that's the thing. I wasn't even really, I was never into fashion and I wasn't really that into costumes, but I really wanted to be an actor. So I went to the University of Tennessee and I was so excited to finally get there and be in the acting program. And like on my third day, uh, Marianne Custer, who was over the design department said, would you please do a set of costume sketches? Because I know you can draw Hmm. and we want to enter them in this competition. And I said, sure. And she gave me the project and I did them. Long story short, that set of sketches won the competition, which gave me a scholarship in costume design. So suddenly my acting career was completely waylaid and I was on a costume path. So that's how I got into costuming. And at the time, you're right, there were only a couple of books on costume design through the periods and I would pour over that and then, you know, give everything my wacky twist. You know, Mm -hmm. I've never seen a costume that couldn't use glitter and feathers Mm -hmm. and a bird cage and, you know, all the odd things that when they walk onto stage, it's a bad thing in theater if the costume takes over the actor. Uh, But mine often did. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now I will say that I, I worked my entire life to get out of Tennessee to get to the big city, to do, you know, something bigger. And when I got my first movie that I was designing, I got hired as the costumer on a big budget film through Universal Studios. And I was so excited. And I said, well, where is it shooting? And they said, well, we'll mail you all the information and the tickets. And I was so excited. So I told everyone at home, you know, I'm doing this big movie and it's probably going to be, you know, in some foreign country. And when I got the tickets and opened them up, it said McGee Tyson Airport. which was Knoxville, Tennessee. So it was back to the mountains of Tennessee Mm. to shoot October Sky with Jake Gyllenhaal.
1: That's right. I remember that because we
0: had friends who were extras in that movie. Which was very irritating to me Mm because they would show up and say, oh, hey, Stephen, are you at the Playhouse today? It's like, I live in New York City. I am serious about this now. So that was an (laughs) aggravating project, but a great movie. And of course, Jake Gyllenhaal and Laura Dern were both fabulous.
1: I remember that you did Mariah's either either wardrobe
0: or hair for glitter. I worked on wardrobe in glitter as just a very small part. But then I was hired as the costume designer for her next movie, which was called Wise Girls. Okay. And it featured Mariah Carey, Melora Walters, and Mira Sorvino. And it was during that project that went on forever because we, we shot it in Nova Scotia. And it went on for so long that I started making things and people saw the ornaments. And when they saw the ornaments, they said, you know, because that's what I was making. Because to me, it was always Christmas. I always loved Christmas. So I was making things and someone said to me along the way, you should take those to Atlanta. And I'm like, "Okay, Why Atlanta? And I thought, why Atlanta? What's going on in Atlanta? But it turns out that that's where America's Mart is located. And that is where every store in the entire world goes to shop for their merchandise. So that was the hub for what you would end up doing. It was. I had no idea. I thought that I was going to go and sell a pile of ornaments like it was a craft sale Mm -hmm. and be done. But as it turned out, then the first hour, and of course, I was very excited. And the Mart came to me and said, Stephen, we want you to know that the way this works is... um, Nothing at all might happen. And the booth was very expensive at the time. It was like $5,000 for a 10-foot booth. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, within the first hour that I was set up, Country Living magazine came. Mary Engelbrecht's Home Companion magazine came. And all these others, within the first hour, and said, we want to feature you in a magazine. Mm-hmm. Well, the only thing that existed were five Christmas ornaments and five Halloween ornaments. But these magazines made it look like the- Glitterville was already an empire. Right. So... At that time, Department 56, which who is famous for making all the small villages, they came and said, "We would like to license you and we'll make this worldwide in 3 months."
1: And you had you had already started Glitterville as what as an LLC at that yeah. point? Yeah, okay. it was
0: just it was really just a name and 10 okay. ornaments.
1: Let's go back a bit because I remember you were also when you were in New York, you were designing Fifth Avenue windows. Right. I remember helping you cut cardboard for right. something. <laughs> and you had an amazing racket going in, I believe, Greenwich, <laughs> Connecticut. Uh, was it, was it Ridgefield, Greenwich? Connecticut. Ridgefield, Connecticut. Connecticut. Okay. So if I have this right, if memory serves, because this is like- No, I don't like this being described as a racket, I'm gonna... but, but let's see where you go. <laughs> this was maybe 15 years ago. You would assemble Christmas trees in these Connecticut homes- and you would—they would each have these grand staircases, and you would design their staircase. I uh-huh. would assume with some sort of tinsel and ornaments and yep, ornamentation, yep. and you would—you would set it up, and then you would take it down, and you would store all of this on location in their homes, <laughs> exactly. So you would do a few homes, and then word got out, and it would be, "Have Stephen done your grand staircase?" <laughs> exactly, and you yeah. took over.
0: That was a few big years that that was really great. And I don't know if you remember the worst part, but, you know, I lived in the city and I would get on the train every day and go there. But the train was very expensive. And soon I had so many things to do that I would start early in the morning and there wasn't enough time in the day. So finally, people would call and I'd say, well, I have 12 o'clock at night. Or I remember one woman. I never saw her in person. She left a check. I went to her home at 2 a.m. and we did her house. But it got so bad that we needed a storage unit to store things in because I couldn't keep running back to the city. Then it got so bad that we actually pulled my car into the storage unit and slept there overnight. That's how busy and how grim it got. And one of my clients heard, uh, who I refer to as holiday hours, she heard that we were sleeping in a storage unit. And said, oh, no, you can't do you can't have Ridgefield's finest Christmas decorator sleeping in a storage unit. So after that, I stayed at her house. OK, so here's the question out of all of this. Did this Connecticut
1: Christmas experience, which sounds like a Hallmark movie, did this
0: spark in you? OK, I have to expand or die at this point. I thought that that very thing might kill me, but you know with me, there's never been a grand planned. It's, you know, I want life to be interesting. So for the time, it was very fun, and I was very good at it. And, you know, Christmas is something that comes second nature to me. I don't have to think about it. And doing trees and all that kind of thing is so quick and so easy, and I really love doing it. So it just seemed like the next progression of, oh, well, you know, right now this is you know, it was very profitable. Also, with the clientele that I had, which I still have some of, I've kept some over the years that even through everything else, I still go and, um, and do their house for Christmas.
1: Let's go back to Atlanta, and you get picked up by these magazines, and then there's a licensing agreement
0: in place. How do you build from there? The magazines really built the hype. Mm-hmm. So, the hype for Glitterville was actually in place before Glitterville was in place. Okay. And I remember the day that one of the magazines came in that first hour and they said, We would like to take our samples with us to shoot back at the studio. And I'm like, The samples, you don't want to carry those around all day. Not telling them that the only thing that existed in the world of glitterball oh was, my was in front of them. Yeah. And that was five Christmas ornaments and five Halloween ornaments. So I said, you know what, when I get home next week, because the show was still a week, I'll mail you samples. And I thought, oh no, now I have to go home and make them. Right. And at that time, the ornaments would take you know an entire day to make each one. You know, the hype happened before the business, which is a good plan. Sure. You just have to run really fast to catch it. <laughs>
1: You had the horses, and then you had to build the cart exactly. as they were flying down the exactly. street. Let's talk about Glitterville today. You get inspired to create, say, an ornament. First, I'm wondering where and when that inspiration happens, or if you can even pin that down. And then what, what happens from, okay, this is definitely something we want to add to our collection. How does it get made from there?
0: I wish it was as planned out as that. Mm. I wish it was me thinking, oh, let's add this to that collection. But unfortunately, and everybody thinks there's a plan because the world really doesn't understand how trends work. You know, they think people set trends Uh and they go from there. But the way trends happen is someone in Asia sees that someone somewhere made a llama. And suddenly they decide, oh, llamas might be popular. So they put a llama on everything. Well, stores in the world go to Asia and they see llamas on everything and they bring them back to America and suddenly that becomes a trend. So for a company like Glitterville to follow a trend, it's impossible because we would be years behind if we tried to follow that system. So there's no plan into what actually gets made. My friend Brian Crabtree and I travel all over the world to make these things. And used to, when I started, I thought I had to sit at a particular desk, in a particular chair, mm. with a particular marker, and a piece of paper that was always the same size, and I would draw these things out. Now it happens on an airplane, in a car, sitting in a doctor's office, wherever you are. And it usually happens with, oh, sloth circuit. So I'll draw a sloth, and we'll work on that. And so once the drawing is conceived, wherever it's conceived, then I will generally sculpt it. Sculpt what do you it. sculpt it out of? Paper clay. It, ben Fidan, if you had one of my craft books that's in a series, Glitterville's <laughs> Handmade Christmas or Glitterville.com, everyone. That's right. You would already know that my favorite material was paper clay. So I sculpted out of paper clay, which is a uh, beautiful material, and uh, painted up. And then we will take it uh, usually to Manila. Most of Glitterville is made in Manila okay. because that's who has craftsmen who can actually. Set down and put as much detail in it as you know, Glitterville has. So we'll sit around the table and they will make them to be exactly like mine, and then they come back to the Glitterville line. Everything in Glitterville is completely handmade, hand painted, everything. So start to finish. Let's say I have a thousand sloths made mm-hmm. in Manila. Where do those sloths go? Well, they can end up. Anywhere in the world, and um, do they go to a distribution center first? Well, actually, if it, take me it, through it, the journey of a sloth. Please. Well, you know that sloth might even have materials that we've carried in our luggage from country to country, because sometimes you can't find feathers in that country, you can't find glitter in this country. So our bags are generally full of interesting things that we go across borders and do all this stuff with. But once the item is made, it then gets put on the water and transported to all of our warehouses in California. We have sales reps uh, in our showrooms. They go out to all the stores in the country. They sell it. They take the order. And then the orders go to the warehouse and it's distributed all over the country. Now, some of our most popular brands that you would be aware of is like we do a lot of Christmas for anthropology. So a lot of people sometimes look at Glitterville and they go, I know this, but from where? I don't think I know Glitterville, but Uh I know the product. Where is it from? That's almost the catering of inedible objects, Right. right? A lot of
1: people don't realize this. If you're a restaurant or if you make donuts, you don't just have your little donut kiosk somewhere in Midtown. You've got to be selling those
0: donuts. Right. Everywhere that donuts are sold. Right. Because you don't want to sell just 10 sloths. Right. You want to sell thousands of sloths. Yes. So, sloths everywhere. <laughs> uh, so it's stores like Anthropology and Neiman Marcus and, you know, and mom and pop stores all around the country and even in Europe. Obviously, you have to
1: have products and ornaments that you can sell year round. This must have been in your head
0: when you were figuring out how is this going to unfold. Well, and actually, the only thing in Glitterville that is Christmas is Santa and a snowman and a reindeer. But outside of those three characters, I've always looked at Glitterville as Glitterville, where every day's a holiday. So, <laughs> ding! <laughs> so that's the, that's the premise. So it's not about having things that are specifically Christmas. It's about having things that just make you smile or make you happy that you can surround yourself with all year round.
1: Kept a uh, foot in costuming because I know you do a lot of work
0: with Oprah Winfrey. Mm-hmm. Seven years ago, someone came into the showroom in Atlanta, and that was her creative director, Adam Glassman. We started talking and he said, you know, would you be interested in doing some work with us? And I said, absolutely. And we did immediately work on a project. And that was a project that, you know, people say, well, you know, were you very specific with what you do? And, and that's the other thing. Mm-hmm. Everybody always knows I have no focus. Mm-hmm. You know, I can I can do a lot of different things. But this
1: makes you open to opportunity. And it does. I, I feel like if there's one message that I want to get across, this isn't the discussion of the Glitterville brand. But it's how you, with eyes wide open, looking in all directions, were able to go to New York and translate your skills into a number of different
0: things. Right. And that's the, that's the thing I always tell, is that you have to be willing to do a lot of different things and make yourself good at a lot of different things. And in the early days, I couldn't turn down anything. So that's I had right. to I you know, this. figure out how to do whatever. And luckily, you know, I, I can learn it quickly if I don't know how to do it and at least sell enough sparkle that people think I know how to do it. But uh, with the First Oprah project, you know, I think I baked 2,000 biscuits, uh, made like 75 cakes in the middle of summer with frosting melting down on the floor with me crying. And at two in the morning, I'm like, I can't help it if frosting can't stay on a cake. And when Oprah's involved, you're like, oh my gosh, this has to happen. So on that first project, I think I showed them the breadth of what I can do. Anything from baking to, you know, making to, you know, there were costume pieces or all kinds of things. And then uh, each year through the years now, you know, we've done practically everything with them and always do the holiday covers. Um, So, you know, whatever wacky thing Oprah is doing, usually she has gift boxes because everybody knows Oprah loves a gift. You get a car. You Mm -hmm, get a car. mm -hmm. She is the ultimate gift giver. So it makes sense that uh, we've wrapped thousands of packages for her Mm -hmm. over the years. Mm -hmm. But you have to be willing to do anything and, you know, make yourself available. And one of the things you touched on earlier, which is a great story, is, you know, as you know, when I came to New York, I wanted to do windows on Fifth Avenue. Right. And I mentioned this in the costume shop to someone. And everybody said, well, Stephen, you can't do that because that is an industry that somebody has to die off and you have to be well-connected. So I was sort of, you know, my bubble had been burst on that. I thought I would never do it. And I told that story in the costume shop one day. And then the next day, the very next day, after my saying I'll never be able to do windows, I pick up the telephone and it's Henry Bindle, the store, the famous store. And they said, could we please speak with Stephen? And I said, yes, this is he. (laughs) And they said, this is Henry Bindle. And, you know, is there any way you could do our holiday windows this year? And I'm like, yes, but I have to check my schedule. So I couldn't imagine how this had happened. And as it turned out, a very famous costume designer named Alvin Colt, who had designed Barnum. And at that time, he was an elderly man in his 80s. And uh, he was in the shop that day and he heard me and he said you know if anybody has that much passion to do something nobody should forbid it hmm. and because he was so famous at the time and he had shopped for every celebrity in the world he called henry bendel and said you've got to have this guy do your windows mm-hmm. and they called me immediately so he saw the passion in me and then at that point i'm like oh my gosh can i do windows mm-hmm. But, as you know, because I I think you were sucked into a few of those. Yes, of
1: course. Sure. (laughs) Yeah, all hands on deck. Exactly. It's a
0: steep learning curve. Exactly. And we worked in a warehouse over by Uh the water and... You know, it was ugly times, but beautiful windows. Yes. People only see the result. They don't see the sweat and paper cuts that uh, that go into it. Exactly. And I continued to do their windows for the holidays. I remember the one, I know you worked on this one, where we did a giant paper valentine. Yes. And that was amazing. put it in the window with a live model yeah. dressed a, as a live Cupid. Cupid. Yeah. Yep. And <laughs> he had on tiny little shorts. And then I decided I would fill the window with chocolate. Up around him, not knowing that his leg heat would melt the chocolate. So, you know, there were some things. So along it wasn't the way. ultimately uh, the chocolatey good Right, but, we that, were going but for. they were all covered on television. You know, each one was, you know, live at, at Bindle's. So so let's, let's stay with this. And I think that, you know, one of the
1: reasons that people move from small cities to big cities and let their dreams be known is because that's something that actually works. After my first couple jobs, I never applied for anything in my life. I would just talk to people and say, you know, I'm really interested in doing X, Y, Z. That sticks with people. It right. sticks with people, and they think, okay, Ben wants to do this, and I know this guy. Right. And then the next time they see that guy or that gal, they say, you know, you should talk to my friend Ben, because he's looking to do XYZ, and he's
0: done ABC before. Exactly, and that's the thing. It's that personal connection. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you remember back when, but you know, I was with a group of people who were actors. And they were lamenting their desire to be on Saturday Night Live. Right. And I'm like, well, why don't you just tell them? And they said, well, you can't. Nobody can get on Saturday Night Live. It's an impossible situation. So I said, well, no, I'm sure I could get there. And they said, you can't even get a ticket to the show. So I started sending them my headshot weekly with a little note that said, my name's Steven. Stephen. Yeah. I'm from Tennessee. Yep. And I've watched you my whole life. And I don't know what you're doing, but I'd love to do it. And in three weeks' time, they called me back and said, why don't you come in and uh, we have something for you? And I'm like, at Saturday Night Live? So I told all these people and they're like, you're lying. I go in to meet them. And uh, as it turned out, I worked as an extra behind the guest star on Saturday Night Live. It showed those people that really all it takes is the desire to do it, a personal connection, and, you know, the... Hutzpah or whatever it is to really get in there and do it now as it turned out that particular gig you would have to go to NBC on Saturdays at noon and you were sequestered till two in the morning you couldn't leave for anything so it was a, it was a rough project but uh, my point was as long as you have the desire to do it you can get there and do it
1: yeah but it's the getting there part it's the getting up off the couch you will not get cast on SNL by sitting on the
0: couch watching SNL saying Oh, I could do that. Right, right. No, it's a lot of yellow Post-it notes (laughs) on your picture that, you know, (laughs) when I came to New York, I had a very glamorous headshot taken. And I remember once um, going in for As the World Turns. They had called me in and they said, we want to call you in for the the romantic lead. This picture is so beautiful. And of course, you know, when I get there, I'm a goofball. So (laughs) They're like, (laughs) you (laughs) know, you are not a romantic lead, but you're certainly the goofball next door. So you should you should never try to portray yourself as, you know, Errol Flynn, Mm -hmm. beautiful like you are in this picture when, you know, you're the great guy next door, which you'd get hired for. Uh, And that taught me something that, you know, even though the picture was selling one thing. You know, when you show up in person, you have to be genuine and who you are, because they're going to see through it if you're not. Don't cast yourself against type before you exactly. even walk in the door. Exactly. Yeah. I like that. That's a good <laughs> takeaway.
1: There are a lot of people in the USA who do crafts and have been doing them all their life. How did you build up an expertise in making
0: crafts? Craft people are really interesting people. You know, there are crafts people who are born like you will be once you read the book (laughs) and actually try a project. So I'm not saying you couldn't be birthed as a crafter. But craft people, you know, usually have done it their entire life. And whether I was doing costuming or making things or whatever, you know, it was all about how do I make this look like this? And Mm. how does it have an armature and a structure? And, you know, what's going to make it sparkle? And, you know, so I always had that knowledge. And most craft people do. But in order to take it to the next level, you have to figure out what makes you different. When right before Glitterville became Glitterville, I started by there are Halloween buckets from the turn of the century. And I wanted them so badly, but they're really expensive. So I said, oh, let me make some. So I made some that looked just like the originals. And I thought, oh, I should sell these. And then I saw that other people were selling those. And I'm like, well, why would I make something everybody else is making? So let me take that idea and turn it into something else. And at the time, because I was influenced by turn of the century Halloween, a lot of people would say, uh, oh, that looks just like Tim Burton. You're mm, knocking Tim mm, Burton okay. off. And I would, I would always say, oh, it looks like Tim Burton. He has been knocking me off for years, which was all fine and good until I was doing a signing at Disney. And somebody said, Tim Burton is here and is coming over here. I was like, oh, no, he's heard. Um, but that was fine because he was also inspired by that turn of the century Halloween. Right. But the point of that is... A lot of people aren't going to know that. They're right. not going to take it that far Exactly. Back. Yeah. And the point was, you know, don't try to make things other people are making. Make something that's your own because that's what's going to make you stand out and make it interesting to people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, <laughs> what, what will your ornament line include? Will it be a piano? Right. And hosen, right. you know, I, I yeah. wear a lot of hosen. I, I, I uh, see on the gram. But yet I've not been sent any from you from Germany <laughs> uh, quite yet. But you can take my measurements all right, today. All right, fair enough.
1: In East Tennessee, there's a lot of people who can make anything out of wood, right? But they still have to, you don't become a master carpenter overnight. Right. There must be a level of learning by doing and failing where you try to make an ornament and it
0: just looks like a glob of nothing. Oh, definitely. You know, early on, uh, here's the other thing is that when Glitterville started and I was still living in New York, but I would go to Tennessee and I wouldn't say that I had great sculpting ability at that point, but when I was wanting to mass produce, everything was made from balls, Mm -hmm. styrofoam balls. That's right. So if it wasn't a shape that a ball could be cut into or pinned together with toothpicks or whatever, I just avoided it. So everything was sort of a roundish quality. And then slowly over time, I got tired, I guess, of round things and started adding on and and honing the sculpting. But, you know, crafters have things like people with arms sticking out. And, you know, how do you make that arm where it doesn't fall off immediately? Mm -hmm. So that's how you learn through trial and error. Okay, I have to put that wire all the way through the styrofoam ball. So both arms, you know, are connected. And so I guess that's how you really build up that knowledge of it is just trial and error. And, okay, the arm fell off, so I can't do that again. And over time, you learn enough to keep you going. But you never know everything. Even if you think you do, you don't. And you have to just keep trying things and... See what works. Life's a journey. Lifelong learning. Merry <laughs> Christmas, Stephen Brown. Thank you for coming on Thank the soundboard. Thank you, sound Ben Banan, And I want you to make every day a holiday. <laughs> nice work, everybody. <laughs>
1: You've been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard clips from Steinway artist Simon Mulligan performing I Saw Three Ships, The First Noel, "A Little Town of Bethlehem, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and Silent Night, all from his album Christmas at Steinway Hall, available from the Steinway & Sons label or wherever you stream your music. Our intro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com. Questions for the podcast can be sent to info at steinway.com with the subject heading soundboard. Happy holidays, and I'll catch you next year for our second season. Thank you for listening.